The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Park and 41st. 79 degrees outside the KSCO studios, and it's 406. Up next, it's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner, and I am joined today by Michael Cohen, Professor Michael Cohen. Michael is a professor of constitutional law at Monterey College of Law, and he is also the host of International Crossroads, which is an integral part of our program. We are without Mitchell Winnick today. Michael, can we handle it? I think so. It's so nice to be without Mitch and just have you here, Stephen. Oh. <laughs> oh. I'm just hope, I'm hoping he's listening from Italy. I think he is. You know, I think he might be back on U.S. soil now, actually. Oh, so, perfect. Uh, uh, we will... If, uh, I, if I had known that, I wouldn't have said that. We will get by... I think that might be... Is that a Grateful Dead lyric? I don't know. Uh, anyway, we're going to take on U.S. Supreme Court cases and recent U.S. Supreme Court cases uh, because there has been a spate of cases that have been decided or maybe not decided, which leads me to this one. And let's talk about it first, Michael. Uh, we've been without the full complement of justices for a while on the highest court in the land. Right, right. Uh, what's your take on this and and what kind of a setback or lack of traction does it cause? Yeah, so, you know, um, the highest court of our land has nine justices. By the way, there's no requirement in the Constitution that there be nine. It just happens to be that that's where things have been that has fluctuated a great deal in history. Um, all that said, it's nine now, which is nice, a uh, convenient number because it's odd, <laughs> meaning that there's no deadlock. Um, and once Justice Scalia died, we had the opportunity and potential for deadlock on a court that was politically divided 4-4 in its liberal or conservative leanings, um, which caused a great deal of uh, apprehension, I think, amongst legal scholars. So let's quickly run down the blockbusters and see how much damage the 4-4 all right, now, see, so, and I like the way you're using the term damage. You're unabashedly jumping right in and referencing it as kind of a problem. Well, yeah, it's always a problem, right? Because you, anytime there's a deadlock, it essentially is an affirmance 
without a decision. Yeah, that's right. And and the case doesn't get reheard. Right, leaving people at bay. That's right. It's a decision without a decision. And so that's always whatever your views are, that's never a good thing from a process standpoint. You want cases that the court agrees to take to be decided on the merits not to be decided by a deadlock. Yeah, that's a good point. So the deadlock actually affects people um, irrespective, really, of their position or the dog they have in the fight, so to speak. Per- precisely. All right, so what do we, what do we got so on the list? So top 10 blockbuster cases, votes and how they were impacted. Abortion, whole woman's health. This was the case in Texas that held uh, uh, there was an undue burden by the Texas regulations on abortion. 5-3 vote. Kennedy was the swing vote with the four liberal-leaning justices. Wouldn't have mattered if Scalia was on the bench or not. Interesting. Wouldn't have mattered. Would have been 5-4. Unless Scalia would have been persuasive to Justice Kennedy's thoughts about the case. And that's the question we'll never know because he was, in fact, very influential. So now I noted in your inflection there, because I like the way you cast that, it is possible that Scalia would have been persuaded. You know, we think of profiling Scalia as being in one camp all the time, yeah. but he's been moved over he has. by other justices. He was an intellectual giant, uh, the counterpart to Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court. And together, they had um, a very healthy ability to persuade other justices of their views. And their own debates were often um, the most constructive process on the court. He's missed. The public corruption case, McDonald versus United States, Virginia governor, eight to nothing. Wouldn't have mattered. Good gosh, even Justice Thomas voted with everybody else, which never happens. All right. Immigration, biggest case um, recently. This is the Obama executive order for the uh, deportation of parents of undocumented children. Four, four deadlock. Obama's executive order unconstitutional without a decision on the merits. By the way, the Obama administration moved for reconsideration, hoping to have at least the, the decision considered on the merits once the court is stocked again. Denied as of uh, last week. Affirmative action, the Fisher versus United, uh, University of Texas case, uh, considering race in college admissions. Four, three. Uh, Justice Kagan had to recuse herself, and Justice Kennedy, again, was the swing vote. Um, you know, theoretically, wouldn't have mattered if, if Scalia was there or not, but we don't know about the persuasion. Jury selection, using peremptory strikes on the basis of race, 7 to 1. Probably wouldn't have mattered at all. I would agree with you on that one. And the one, by the way, was Thomas. That's right. Thomas apparently is the only person in America that thinks you can use race for a peremptory strike. Yeah, yeah. That was the one that got, got the justices uh, reviewing Bats and Wheeler. We'll go back right. to it in yeah. the merits a little Abs- bit. Yeah, I'm just, just in- insane to me. Yeah. Um, the Obamacare contraception case, eight to nothing. Voting rights, one person, one vote. Eight to nothing. Public unions. This is the California case as to whether or not you can compel a non-union member to pay dues for speech that they and, and activities that they don't um, believe in. Four, four. This was a big case, Stephen. This case was set up to lose. And it is entirely possible, frankly, that Scalia, well, Scalia almost definitely would have held or would have voted 
uh, with the conservative block that you cannot compel these dues. Okay, so when you finish that blockbuster list, let's definitely go Just, back to those four fours because yep, there's yep. a lot of good tension there. Absolutely. And there's two more. The death penalty case, Florida jury um, recommendations versus uh, decisions on a, se- on a 75% or a majority of the jury decision. Um, eight to one, not a close call uh, other than for, for Justice Thomas, who apparently would, you know... Um, have no procedures at all for the death penalty. And then juvenile justice. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, giving um, juvenile killers, um, uh, in essence, a pass, and at least uh, on life without parole, and, and letting them be eligible for parole at some point in their life. So that's the one we, at one point, just to go back to, over the history of that case, at one point there was uh, tension over whether juveniles could be exposed to the death penalty, that was reversed, and then it was an LWAP, life without parole. Right. And now this case actually made life without parole too harsh of a that's, sentence. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Six to three. Wow. Probably would not have made a, 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 a um, uh, I'm sorry, f- five to three. Would, wouldn't have made a, a, a difference. So, so, you know, um, if you look at all this, there are a couple of ta- cases that are big, that are big, that it did impact. Um, and, and one additional case that actually got sent back, um, and that's the Obamacare cons- contraception case, the, the eight to nothing vote on that was to send it back to the district courts to figure it out, not so much to resolve it on the merits, okay. because they couldn't reach a decision in their debate. Okay, so, so they sent, all agreed to do it. Sent back to the intermediate court with specific uh, identified tasks. Yeah, go figure review. this out. Figure it words. out. <laughs> okay, There's got to be a compromise here. Um, uh, and we can't... And and we can't reach it. Right. So There's got to be a compromise here, but we can't reach it, and we don't want to affirm your decision. Yeah. So we're going to have to... We have, we, it's a punt. Yeah. I was just going to say, no, it must go by a fancier name than punt. <laughs> right? But, in, but really, they, the, yeah. that is the Supreme Court's way of communicating. We cannot decide it. We want right. you to go back because you should be the person's most knowledgeable on the issue. Is that... Accurate? I'd put it a little bit differently, um, Stephen, in this sense. Um, um, You know, in essence, it's it's a remand uh, for a retry. Uh, Do it again. Um, It's not not quite ready. We want you to take another shot at it before we see it. But what they're really saying is that our our court broke. We can't reach a decision. This is really important. We're going to send it back to you until we may be able to reach a decision. Okay, so you think there might be some judicial economy issues Absolutely. intertwined there. Absolutely. I think it's a complete right. acknowledgement that, the, that the, they couldn't, they couldn't All right. uh, reach so, a decision. So when we come back from the break, because I know we're coming up on, on our first break, let's work through this list and then highlight or focus more on those four fours a little bit and talk about those five threes, those cases where Scalia actually might have been swayed to go in a direction you might not predict. I think that'd be a good way to go. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law My In Studio. Guest is constitutional law professor Michael Cohen. We're talking about recent U.S. Supreme Court case decisions and the complexion of the U.S. Supreme Court. What does it mean to be missing one justice? We'll be right back after this short break. Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? 
Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. The Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. My in-studio guest is my colleague at Monterey College of Law. He teaches constitutional law, and that is Michael Cohen. Michael's also the host of International Crossroads, which is an integral part of our program at Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Michael, we rolled out the blockbuster list of cases. I was listening intently on the numbers and the way the justices ruled and noting those cases that were 4-4 or 5-3. Let's get into those cases and just talk about the the what-ifs, if you don't mind, on some of those. Let's take on the 4-4 immigration case out of Texas. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest case and the biggest case to be decided on deadlock. And the the issue there, by the way, Stephen, is likely not so much the outcome. Um, the uh, Here's what's going on here. Let me, let me talk about what's going on. Uh, Congress sets the immigration policy in the nation. This is an exclusive province of the federal government, and it is the exclusive province of, col- of Congress. This is, this is within their power to legislate. They set immigration legislation. So if we look at the branches of government, it's a legislative Ledifor- legislative task. You know, 100%. President executes the laws of the land faithfully. Congress makes the laws of the land faithfully. And the court interprets the laws of the land. Um, I don't know if they do that faithfully, but they get to do it. But at least you got the three branches identified. <laughs> I did. Those are the three right. branches of government, right? So those that's what you have. That's how the country works. It's how it's worked since 1789. Um, maybe a little bit af- after that, because the Supreme Court actually had to carve out its role. But all the same, that that's the those are the branches of government. The way immigration ha- has worked when it comes to the parents of undocumented children. I'm sorry, the parents of citizen children. These are undocumented parents of citizen children. So say somebody immigrates to the United States illegally or in an undocumented way, they have a child in the United States. That child is a citizen. At birth. At birth. Yes. But the parents are not, and they're still undocumented. There are about 11 million people in the United States like that. And for a long time, the policy of the presidents, Republican or Democrat, in enforcing deportation in that context was to not do it. You know, what are you going to do? Send the parents away and put the kid in a foster home in the United States or send the the citizen away with them because they're a juvenile U.S. citizen, but you're deporting the parents? It presents a very complicated situation from a family standpoint. So if we look at it historically, there was no history of a president trying to step in or to take action to what well, I'm going to just cut to the chase and say, break up a family, break up a family. I mean, it's in fact, it's a fund one of our fundamental rights is the, is the is the right to live together in a related family. It's one of the fundamental rights that have been interpreted under our Constitution. Um, related living, we call we call it in the constitutional speak. And so, yeah, presidents have generally said, hey, we're not going to step in there and, and break up a family. Obama's administration said to Congress, hey, pass a law that says that. It's what we've been doing for a long time. It makes sense. Pass a law that says that. And and also pass all these other things that we want in the big immigration reform. And Congress, through its political process, said no. 
you know you can make that enforcement decision on an ad hoc basis case by case but we're not passing a blanket law that just says every parent of an undocumented child citizen automatically you know is entitled to benefits in america um and um uh, so obama issued an executive order that basically did that. He just he basically issued an executive order and said, our policy in America, from an enforcement perspective, is that we're never going to break up a family and anybody can get benefits. Okay, so let me break it down and see if we can actually visualize what happens with an executive order. Yeah. All right, as odd or dorky as this may be. That's all if right. If there is an executive order issued like that, right. that means that the captive audience would be enforcement branches, correct? That's right. But so, so really, it's the president saying, don't take action. That's correct. But it has the effect of legislation and policy in many ways. The, the order goes, if there's a treaty and an executive order, right, um, the treaty ca um, can, can control. It would trump. If there's, an, if, there's a, if there's an executive order and legislation, the executive order always loses. But in the absence of legislation, an executive order can suffice to be a law in practical terms because it be, you know, a law is only as good as it's, it is enforced. Okay. So Obama did this and states went nuts. Um, you know, half the states sued him. 26 states. More than half the states sued right. him. Let okay. me rephrase. Well, it, it would be more than half by our count, yeah. not Obama's count. Not right? Obama's count, Remember, right. I think he thought there were 52 states. That's right. All right. Which would have made it a tie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. right. I had to get that but in. But there are still 50. You yeah. Know? Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> and so... Uh, uh, um, uh, and so the states went nuts, and this was a big issue in the Supreme Court, not so much for its impact on immigration, Stephen, as it's been characterized in the news, because from an immigration standpoint, nothing's really changed when it comes to the policy that's on the street. But from the fight between the branches of government and who does what, what the states saw here is a president go to Congress, Congress say no, and then the president kind of do what he wants. Hey, that's the way the world works. That is politics. That is the process. So the intermediate court in this case ruled in what way? What was the And outcome? joined the executive order. And said it was unconstitutional for the president to issue this kind of an executive order. Once the president has gone to Congress and Congress has refused to legislate in the precise area that you have asked, you can't just you know, backdoor that by an enforcement policy that gives effect to what Congress refused to do. So 26 states or let's say uh, 25 states joined Texas, so 26 total states, right? right? And I'm assuming these would be states that have robust, undocumented mo citizens or absolutely. denizens. Mo most of the undocumented parents of citizen aliens are in three states, uh, New York, Texas, and California. Okay. And then you can you know, beef that up with the Arizonas and the New Mexicos sure. and others. But those, those three states account for, account for most of the people we're talking about. So that's, one, that's an example of the 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. Right? That's a, and that's a 4-4. Four, four. And, and had Scalia been on the court, it likely would have been a 5-4 decision against Obama. And the impact of this decision is, in fact, that the injunction against Obama's immigration order stands. Okay. So it may not have changed the outcome, but there's been no decision on the merits of an important issue as between these two branches of government. 
And yeah. now we're just, you know, lacking. Yeah, so there's a good example of a lack of definition where something's crying out for a definition because you had mentioned this in the lead. Yeah. It leaves a lot of people on alerts here, these 404 decisions. Right. But we also don't know that. We might, for example, Scalia may have said, you know what, this is a political question. I'm not going to get involved as between the president's executive order and Congress when it wants to legislate. The solution to this isn't the court to say isn't for the court to say let's what pick Obama it up. did. Let's pick it up when we get back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. My in-studio guest is constitutional law professor Michael Cohen, and we're talking about recent U.S. Supreme Court cases and the complexion of the U.S. Supreme Court, the composition that is, because we are only with eight justices. We'll be right back after this short break. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy LaRiviere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. 
Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. Oye.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to Oye.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. And you can reach us with questions or comments by emailing comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. Comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. My in-studio guest is constitutional law professor Michael Cohen. Michael, we were talking about the immigration case out of Texas and the 4-4 split. And on the break, we were trying to go way, way behind the curtain a bit, right? And yeah. talk about uh, some more what-if scenarios had Scalia been actually part of the panel. Yeah, and that's what's fun. It's, it's what makes the court so much fun, right? Everything the court does matters, and it's fun to kind of, you know, think about what goes on back there. And one thought that I've had, Stephen, is that it is very possible, to me at least, plausible to me, that Scalia may not have voted against this executive order. There's a long-standing doctrine in the Supreme Court that they don't decide political questions. And that's a really important one. And Scalia may have very well have been of the view that, hey, this is a fight between Congress and the president. There's nothing unconstitutional going on. The president's exercising his authority. Congress is exercising its. And this can be resolved through the political process. Congress can pass a law that says exactly the opposite of, of Obama's executive order. 
it can legislate around the problem. Okay, that that's interesting. So let me see if I get it. Uh, although Justice Scalia may have agreed that the executive order was improper, he could have also opined that it was a political question, meaning that the parties are asking us to preside over a clash between two branches of government. Right. And that's what that political question issue is. And we don't do that. We don't do that. You know, Congress does stuff that's improper. The president may do stuff that's improper. And what is improper? We don't, we're not here to decide the propriety of political action. We're here to decide the constitutionality of action. And the president has authority to issue executive orders. Congress has authority to legislate. And in fact, Congress has the ultimate authority because they can legislate and it trumps executive hours. And if you Congress come here and you states come here and say the, the president has passed an executive order that conflicts with legislation, we will decide in a heartbeat that that's unconstitutional. But that's not what we have. Interesting. Meaning that it's it goes to the ballot box. That's right. It's really it's legislative, meaning that it goes to vote. It goes to vote. Goes to the people. The power of this country resides in the people. What Congress does trumps everything, unless it violates one of the Bill of Rights. That's the way our structure of government is set up. That's that's good. That's and, and Scalia easily could have said here. Put this back to the people, and the president has has done something that a lot of people may not like. I, I may even not agree with it, but he's acting constitutionally. He's put this back on Congress to do something about, and there's nothing unconstitutional about that. And then to think about the position of the undocumented parents. What, what's their status now? Yeah, so here's the upshot. You know, under the Obama executive order, parents... Undocumented parents would have come forward. They would have been granted an automatic deferral of deportation, which would entitle them to stay in the United States and receive benefits. All right. Recognized. Recognized. Full panoply of benefits that we all would uh, get as it, a result of being citizens. It would have taken unrecognized um, undocumented folks who are going to be here anyway and made them come, come forward and gotten deferrals. Now they won't. You know, and and so uh, they, they won't be in essence. They'll still be here, but they won't be put into our status our system. Qu status quo. Status quo. Interesting. Yeah. And then the other thing that I'd add that I think is great that you mentioned earlier is that Scalia, if if he had actually communicated that thought or that wisdom, he may have influenced others. He and may have influenced the other conservative justices. They may have said, hey, that's right. You know, Thomas is a big fan of, you know, ancient uh, uh, constitutional law, me meaning in our country, you know, hundred and some odd year, 200 year old law. This political question doctrine is a fundamental doctrine that has been around since the court first sat. This is really clear-cut stuff. Yeah, that's, a, that's generally a you're either on or off the bus kind of evaluation. That's right, Stephen. Yeah, that's a good it, way to put that's, it. That's really interesting. Let's do the affirmative action case, sure. the, the University of Texas case. That's, uh, that's Fisher, right? Yeah, now this case was, this is one that, you know... Where, where Scalia's absence, I think, really could have mattered. Uh, in, in a whole lot of ways, it's, it's hard to say, but 
Um, Kagan had to recuse herself, so this would have been an eight. This would have been an eight-person court anyway, right? So as it was, it was a seven. Yeah. So now, and recusal means uh, sitting out, sitting out, not sitting in any position. Yeah. She had. She had. She had. She was involved in the case in the Solicitor General's office, representing um, the the United States in 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 connection with the with the with the action. So. when she was elevated to the bench, she had to not participate in the case, um, which, uh, by the way, is not required and wasn't required of her. But uh, it was to maintain the complete appearance of um, uh, impartial decision making and the integrity of the court. Um, so she did that. Um, the The conservative side of the court, Alito, of Roberts. Um, Thomas and Scalia, with Kennedy some, somewhere in the middle, but generally, you know, Reagan appointee affiliated with the conservative side, were fundamentally against the use of race in any way. And this is during the admissions process, and the admissions and process, Fisher, right? To Fisher and Fisher is a case that went up to the Supreme Court, got sent back down. The court, you know, felt very strongly that the, it, it, you know, that they think they got the the circuit court got it wrong again, and it came, came back up. Um, and you know the the issue in the case was whether or not the University of Texas, which automatically accepts the top ten percent of every high school class in the state, however it's composed from a racial mix, right? Whether it could go an additional at, you know beyond that uh, top ten percent admissions policy, whether it could then consider race um, in its need to. Um, uh, and, and desire to have a diverse campus life beyond the the composition that it, it gets from the top ten percent acceptance, and and the court's big problem with that was, hey, you're not showing that you need any more diversity than you're getting. You're getting a lot of diversity from your automatic qualifications, which don't take race into account. Why do you need to take race into account additionally for the rest of the student body? So is that the, this might be the wrong term, but it sounds like it's a compelling interest type it's issue. Strict scrutiny is that, issue okay. usually. Okay, so tell, tell me usually. why you need it in essence. Yeah, exactly. Why do, you, why do you need this? Why is this necessary? There's a compelling interest there's our, the, the test, Stephen, for considering race in, in, in any type of classification under the Equal Protection Clause is that the classification is necessary to achieve a compelling interest. The court has already held that universities have a compelling interest in creating a diverse academic environment. Right, that's been set for a while. Diverse student body has been deemed a compelling interest. Right, so the question is, you know, how do you achieve that? And you know, and the court has a long history of deciding a bunch of cases. You can't use quotas. You can't quantify things. But generally, you can take race into account. All all of this type of stuff. The challenge in Texas was it's not needed at all. Meaning empirically, it was diverse. Precisely. Once you've achieved diversity without taking race into account at all, why do you need to additionally take it into account? For for the you know, fleshing out the student body, and there was a very strong feeling, at, at least amongst court watchers, that this case was going to ban affirmative action um, in uh, race-based admissions in, 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 in under the Texas formula. So that criteria, the race-based criteria, could have eroded. That's right. That's As a right. result, that's what some of the handicappers or court watchers were predicting. 
Correct, correct. And it's a case where it's unclear whether Scalia's vote would have influenced the outcome because it was a 4-4 and that deadlock would have affirmed the, the Fifth Circuit, which held upheld the Texas policy, held it was constitutional. But again, his persuasion on this issue, this was a close case. And it's, it's, not, um, it's not at all clear that, uh, they, that, that all four of the liberal justices, Breyer, Kagan, um, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor, it's not clear that they all four would have uh, voted as a block the other way. And this this was one of those cases where there was genuine, um, intense academic interest and involvement on the court, uh, particularly b- between the justices who were, I would call, opinion leaders. And plaintiff, or, or we'll, we'll pick it up when we get back. We're going out on a break. But let's finish, wrap up on the affirmative action case and then move into California uh, public unions. Sure. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We'll be right back after this short break. My in-studio guest is constitutional law professor Michael Cohen. We're talking about U.S. Supreme Court cases. We'll be right back. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go, so it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. 
If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at FTC.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. My in-studio guest is constitutional law professor and my colleague, Michael Cohen. And we're talking about U.S. Supreme Court cases. And, Michael, we should wrap up on the affirmative action case. Uh, and I, on the break, I had asked you a little bit about the party who was challenging the admissions process. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of an, you know, F Fisher, um, objectively, Fisher did not have any of the academic or extracurricular criteria, even remotely close to qualifying her for admission at the University of Texas. Okay, we had we had to get that out. That's yeah. important. I said, you know, she, she, Fisher was fished by 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 public interest groups sure. to bring this case. At the same time, the equal protection clause exists to protect against the stigma that people feel from discrimination. And that stigma that you can feel from discrimination applies to any race. Yeah, so in this case, Fisher was Caucasian, female Caucasian. Female right? Caucasian, and she felt that, that, that the policy itself discriminated against her because of something she was born into. 
She did not have a plus factor in her admissions as she viewed it because of something that was completely beyond her control. She was born white. And that's no different than the discrimination you feel if you're born black. Now, you can argue socially that, oh, boy, it's a lot easier to be white in this country than it is to be black, or this or that or that thing. But that's not what the Equal Protection Clause is about. The Equal Protection, is about, Equal Protection Clause is about the government not saying something based on the fact that you're white, black, you know, Hispanic, right. or an, Asian. a categorical right. edict or right. rule based upon that. Equal Protection Clause says the government can't discriminate on race, and she felt the government was discriminating against her on race. Okay, got it. Let's go to California. Uh, public unions and the impact on labor. Uh, this is a case involving non-union members, Michael, that I think challenged some of their. I guess their rights were being usurped by virtue of underrepresentation. Did I get that? Am I close? Their their claim was more a First Amendment. Yes, Stephen, you did. And their their claim more kind of, kind of more specifically was this: there are unions in this country where the the there are non-union members, members who you know people who are not in the union that receive the benefits of the union's collective bargaining, and historically the court had said. Um, those unions can compel the non-union member to pay some portion of dues that correlate to the benefits they receive from the collective bargaining. And that's been the law for a long time. This case presented a case that was likely to change that law. And rock labor law like no other. Rock labor law like no other. People brought a case that basically said, here in California, that basically said, hey... You know, even in the collective bargaining table and the back and forth with the union and the school boards, the union is saying things that we don't agree with. We non-union members don't share that political position they are taking at the bargaining table, and you're compelling us to support it. You're compelling us to pay money to support a speech, a political position that we don't agree with, that violates our First Amendment right. So what did the court do with this case? The, the, the court's decision in this case was 4-4. If Scalia had lived, this case would have gone against the union. There is, this is one where you don't have to read tea leaves. So you're confident... This case was politically divided. Liberal, labor, conservative was going to vote for the, for the First Amendment views of the non-union members as a block. That's why this case was percolated up. That's, this case was set up for that result. And they would be those justices you think would be hunkered down to that position. They would have been not hunkered swayed. down. This would have not been swayed or debated. This was everybody said every court pundit said at the beginning of the term, this is the year the union um, com compulsion goes away. The impact would have been massive. Maybe not for every union, but for unions that um, like the California Teachers Union, the financial impact would have been huge. It, may, it would have been even a question of whether the union could continue the, in its current form. And that would have been the case for unions around the country. This case would have been a major, major setback for labor in America, the way that labor is constructed. Um, and it 4-4 deadlocked. The old law remains in effect. 
And uh, uh, I think the, 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 the labor side here dodged a bullet um, this term. Yeah, let's try to get into the death penalty <clears throat> case where we're coming to the end of our, sure. our segment. But the Florida case is intriguing. And that, that deals with the issue of really who decides the ultimate punishment. Who right, decides Michael? the ultimate punishment in a death penalty case? And I, we should say right off the bat, Stephen, that there isn't a term that goes by where we don't have a death penalty True case. that. Isn't a term that goes by where we don't have one. So as settled as everybody thinks the law is, sometimes we have two or three, like last year, but there isn't a term that goes by where we don't have one. Here's what happened in Florida. Florida said, uh, the Supreme Court has said, jury's got to decide death penalty. Jury question. Got to have the jury convict and sentence somebody to death. It's their constitutional, it's a constitutional right. Florida came up with a law said, well, the jury can't quite, if not everybody in the jury can, can decide, if it's not unanimous, three quarters of them can recommend it to the judge and then the judge can decide. And the Supreme Court said, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, it's not TV, so no one saw my eyes roll. But yeah. that's amazing that yeah. they could leave it to the, the court to decide. Well, and leave it to Florida to come up with that law. You know, that's what makes, uh, that makes, what makes our country so, so interesting. And, and out, then the outcome was, that was an 8-1, right? That, that, yeah, the outcome on the Florida death penalty case was 8-1 to one, with Justice Thomas voting for death as he automatically votes. Uh, uh, Justice Thomas would vote for death on the jury, so he's going to vote for death no matter what, so. <laughs> yeah, so so the system's intact now where a jury sits, and usually it's a bifurcated kind of proceeding. They sit in the guilt phase first, and then they sit in the punishment phase, and jurors still decide the ultimate punishment. No matter what you've done in this nation, you can't be killed by the government unless 12 unanimous people say that you can. Yeah. So, Michael, uh, this has been great. I, I like the way we started with the blockbuster list and then worked through the other cases, the ones that I had identified as uh, causing a lot of tension, those four fours, those five threes, and you've really helped a lot on the, on the issue of uh, exactly how we miss Justice Scalia because I hadn't really considered the fact that, you know, he's been swayed yeah. before, you know, yeah. so thanks for coming in. Yeah, and, he's and, missed. Uh, we'll do this again because this topic's never going away. Great to be with you, yeah, Stephen. Thanks, Michael. And Mitch will join us and he'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to another segment of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can reach us at comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. Comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. And as my co-host Mitchell Winnick always says, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Serving Northern California for over 65 years. This is KSCO. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.